Chapter Eleven of the Border Legion by Zane Gray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Following that meeting, with all its power to change and strengthen Joan, there were uneventful days in which she rode the gulch trails and grew able to stand the jests and glances of the bandit's gang. She thought she saw and heard everything, yet insulated her true self in a callous and unreceptive aloofness from all that affronted her. The days were uneventful because, while always looking for Jim Cleve, she never once saw him. Several times she heard his name mentioned. He was here and there, at Beards, off in the mountains. But he did not come to Kells's cabin, which fact, Joan gathered, had made Kells anxious. He did not want to lose Cleve. Joan peered from her covert in the evenings, and watched for Jim, and grew weary of the loud talk and laughter, the gambling and smoking and drinking. When there seemed no more chance of Cleve's coming, then Joan went to bed. On these occasions, Joan learned that Kells was passionately keen to gamble, that he was a weak hand at cards, an honest gambler, and, strangely enough, a poor loser. Moreover, when he lost, he drank heavily, and under the influence of drink, he was dangerous. There were quarrels when curses rang throughout the cabin, when guns were drawn, but whatever Kells's weaknesses might be, he was strong and implacable in the governing of these men. That night when Golden strolled into the cabin was certainly not uneventful for Joan. Sight of him sent a chill to her marrow while a strange thrill of fire inflamed her. Was that great hulk of a gorilla prowling about to meet Jim Cleve? Joan thought it might be worse for him if he were. Then she shuddered a little to think that she had already been influenced by the wildness around her. Golden appeared well and strong, and but for the bandage on his head, would have been as she remembered him. He manifested interest in the gambling of the players by surly grunts. Presently he said something to Kells. What? queried the bandit sharply, wheeling, the better to see Golden. The noise subsided. One gamester laughed knowingly. Lend me a sack of dust, asked Golden. Kells's face showed amaze and then a sudden brightness. What? You want gold from me? Yes, I'll pay it back. Golden, I wasn't doubting that. But does your asking mean you've taken kindly to my proposition? You can take it that way, growled Golden. I want gold. I'm mighty glad, Golden, replied Kells, and he looked as if he meant it. I need you. We ought to get along. Here. He handed a small buckskin sack to Golden. Someone made room for him on the other side of the table, and the game was resumed. It was interesting to watch them gamble. Red Pierce had a scale at his end of the table, and he was always measuring and weighing out gold dust. The value of the gold appeared to be fifteen dollars to the ounce, but the real value of money did not actuate the gamblers. They spilled the dust on the table and ground as if it were common as sand. Still, there did not seem to be any great quantity of gold in sight. Evidently, these were not profitable times for the bandits. More than once Joan heard them speak of a gold strike 
as honest people spoke of good fortune. And these robbers could only have meant that in case of a rich strike there would be gold to steal. Golden gambled as he did everything else. At first he won, and then he lost, and then he borrowed more from Kells. To win again, he paid back as he had borrowed and lost and won, without feeling. He had no excitement. Joan's intuition convinced her that if Golden had any motive at all in gambling, it was only an antagonism to the men of his breed. Gambling was a contest, a kind of fight. Most of the men, except Golden, drank heavily that night. There had been fresh liquor come in with the last pack train. Many of them were drunk when the game broke up. Red Pierce and Wood remained behind with Kells after the others had gone, and Pierce was clever enough to cheat Kells before he left. "'Boss, that there red double-crossed you,' said Bate Wood. Kells had lost heavily, and he was under the influence of drink. He drove Wood out of the cabin, cursing him sullenly. Then he put in place the several bars that served as a door of his cabin. After that he walked unsteadily around, and all about his action and manner that was not aimless seemed to be dark and intermittent, staring towards Joan's cabin. She felt sickened again with this new aspect of her situation, but she was not in the least afraid of Kells. She watched him till he approached her door, and then she drew back a little. He paused before the blanket, as if he had been impelled to halt from fear. He seemed to be groping in thought. Then he cautiously and gradually, by degrees, drew aside the blanket. He could not see Joan in the darkness, but she saw him plainly. He fumbled at the poles, and finding that he could not budge them, he ceased trying. There was nothing forceful or strong about him, such as was manifest when he was sober. He stood there a moment, breathing heavily, in a kind of forlorn, undecided way. And then he turned back. Joan heard him snap the lanterns. The light went out, and all grew dark and silent. Next morning, at breakfast, he was himself again. And if he had any knowledge whatever of his actions while he was drunk, he effectually concealed it from Joan. Later, when Joan went outside to take her usual morning exercise, she was interested to see a rider tearing up the slope on a foam-flecked horse. Men shouted at him from the cabins, and then followed without hats or coats. Batewood dropped Joan's saddle and called to Kells. The bandit came hurriedly out. Blicky, he exclaimed, and then he swore under his breath in elation. Sure as Blicky, said Wood, and his unusually mild eyes snapped with a glint unpleasant for Joan to see. The arrival of this Blicky appeared to be occasion for excitement, and Joan recalled the name as belonging to one of Kells's trusted men. He swung his leg and leaped from his saddle as the horse plunged to a halt. Blicky was a lean, bronzed young man, scarcely out of his teens but there were years of hard life in his face. He slapped the dust in little puffs from his gloves. At sight of Kells, he threw the gloves aloft and took no note of them when they fell. Strike, he called piercingly. No, ejaculated Kells intensely. Bate Wood let out a whoop which was answered by the men hurrying up the slope. 
Been on for weeks, panted Blicky. It's big. Can't tell how big. Me and Jesse Smith and Handy Oliver hit a new road. Over here fifty miles as the crow flies, a hundred by trail. We was plumb surprised. And when we met pack trains and riders and prairie schooners and a stagecoach, we knew there was doings over in the Bear Mountain Range. When we came to the edge of the diggings and seen a wailing big camp like a beehive, Jesse and Handy went on to get the lay of the land, and I hit the trail back to you. I've been a-coming on and off since before sundown yesterday. Jesse gave one look and then hollered, he said. Tell Jack it's a big one and he wants to plan big. We'll be back there in a day or so with all details. Joan watched Kells intently while he listened to this breathless narrative of a gold strike, and then she was repelled by the singular flash of brightness, a radiance, that seemed to be in his eyes and on his face. He did not say a word, but his men shouted hoarsely around Blicky. He walked a few paces to and fro, with hands strongly clenched, his lips slightly parted, showing teeth close shut like those of a mastiff. He looked eager, passionate, cunning, hard as steel, and that strange brightness of elation slowly shaded to a dark, brooding menace. Suddenly he wheeled to silence the noisy men. Where's Pierce and Golden? Do they know? he demanded. Reckon no one knows but who's right here, replied Blicky. Red and Gull are sleeping off last night's luck, said Batewood. Have any of you seen young Cleve? Kells went on. His voice rang quick and sharp. No one spoke, and presently Kells cracked his fist into his open hand. Come on, get the gang together at Beard's. Boys, the time we've been gambling on has come. Jesse Smith saw forty-nine and fifty-one. He wouldn't send me word like this unless there was hell to pay. Come on. He strode off down the slope with the men close around him, and they met other men on the way, all of whom crowded into the group, jostling, eager, gesticulating. Joan was left alone. She felt considerably perturbed especially at Kells's sharp inquiry for Jim Cleve. Kells might persuade him to join the bandit legion. These men made Joan think of wolves, with Kells the keen and savage leader. No one had given a thought to Blicky's horse, and that neglect in border men was a sign of unusual preoccupation. The horse was in bad shape. Joan took off his saddle and bridle and rubbed the dust-caked lather from his flanks and led him into the corral. Then she fetched a bucket of water and let him drink sparingly a little at a time. Joan did not take her ride that morning. Anxious and curious, she waited for the return of Kells, but he did not come. All afternoon Joan waited and watched and saw no sign of him or any of the other men. She knew Kells was forging with red-hot iron and blood that organization which she undesignedly had given a name, the Border Legion. It would be a terrible legion, of that she was assured. Kells was the evil genius to create an unparalleled scheme of crime. This wild and remote border, with its inaccessible fastness of hiding places, was the place. 
All that was wanting was the time, which evidently had arrived. She remembered how her uncle had always claimed that the Bear Mountain Range would see a gold strike which would disrupt the whole West and amaze the world. And Blicky had said a big strike had been on for weeks. Kells's prophecy of the wildlife Joan would see had not been without warrant. She had already seen enough to whiten her hair, she thought, yet she divined her experience would shrink in comparison with what was to come. Always she lived in the future. She spent sleeping and waking hours in dreams, thoughts, actions, broodings, over all of which hung an ever-present shadow of suspense. When would she meet Jim Cleve again? When would he recognize her? What would he do? What could she do? Would Kells be a devil or a man at the end? Was there any justification of her haunting fear of Golden, of her suspicion that she alone was the cause of his attitude toward Kells, of her horror at the unshakable presentiment and fancy that he was a gorilla and meant to make off with her? These and a thousand other fears, some groundless but many real and present, besieged Jones and left her little peace. What would happen next? Towards sunset she grew tired of waiting and hungry, besides, so she went into the cabin and prepared her own meal. About dark, Kell strode in, and it took but a glance for Joan to see that matters had not gone to his liking. The man seemed to be burning inwardly. Sight of Joan absolutely surprised him. Evidently in the fever of this momentous hour, he had forgotten his prisoner. Then, whatever his obsession, he looked like a man whose eyes were gladdened at sight of her and who was sorry to behold her there. He apologized that her supper had not been provided for her, and explained that he had forgotten. The men had been crazy, hard to manage. The issue was not yet settled. He spoke gently. Suddenly he had that thoughtful mien which Joan had become used to associating with weakness in him. "'I wish I hadn't dragged you here,' he said, taking her hands. "'It's too late. I can't lose you.' But the other way isn't too late. What way? What do you mean? asked Joan. Girl, will you ride off with me tonight? he whispered hoarsely. I swear I'll marry you and become an honest man. Tomorrow will be too late. Will you? Joan shook her head. She was sorry for him. When he talked like this, he was not Kells the bandit. She could not resist a strange agitation at the intensity of his emotion. One moment, he had entered a bandit leader, planning blood, murder. The next, as his gaze found her, he seemed weakened, broken in the shaking grip of a hopeless love for her. Speak, Joan, he said, with his hands tightening and his brow clouding. No, Kells, she replied. Why, because I'm a red-handed bandit? No, because I, I don't love you. But wouldn't you rather be my wife and have me honest? then become a slave here, eventually abandoned to, to Golden and his cave and his rope? Kells's voice rose as that other side of him gained dominance. Yes, I would, but I know you'll never harm me or abandon me to that Golden. How do you know, he cried, with the blood thick at his temples. Because you're no beast any more, and you, you do love me. 
Kells thrust her from him so fiercely that she nearly fell. I'll get over it, then look out, he said, with dark bitterness. With that he waved her back, apparently ordering her to her cabin, and turned to the door, through which the deep voices of men sounded nearer and nearer. Joan stumbled in the darkness up the rude steps to her room, and softly, placing the poles in readiness to close her door, she composed herself to watch and wait. The keen edge of her nerves, almost amounting to pain, told her that this night of such moment for Kells would be one of singular strain and significance for her. But why, she could not phantom. She felt herself caught by the changing tide of events, a tide that must sweep her on to flood. Kells had gone outside. The strong, deep voices grew less distinct. Evidently, the men were walking away. In her suspense, Joan was disappointed. Presently, however, they returned. They had been walking to and fro. After a few moments, Kells entered alone. The cabin was now so dark that Joan could barely distinguish the bandit. Then he lighted the lanterns. He hung up several on the wall and placed two upon the table. From somewhere among his effects, he produced a small book and a pencil. These, with a heavy gold-mounted gun, he laid on the table before the seat he manifestly meant to occupy. That done, he began a slow pacing up and down the room, his hands behind his back, his head bent in deep and absorbing thought. What a dark, sinister, plodding figure! Joan had seen many men in different attitudes of thought, but here was a man whose mind seemed to give forth intangible yet terrible manifestations of evil. The inside of that gloomy cabin took on another aspect. There was a meaning in the saddles and bridles and weapons on the wall. That book and pencil and gun seemed to contain the dark deeds of wild men, and all about the bandit hovered a power sinister in its menace to the unknown and distant toilers for gold. Kells lifted his head, as if listening, and then the whole manner of the man changed. The burden that weighed upon him was thrown aside. Like a general about to inspect a line of soldiers, Kells faced the door, keen, stern, commanding. The heavy tread of booted men, the clink of spurs, the low, muffled sound of voices, warned Joan that the gang had arrived. Would Jim Cleve be among them? Joan wanted a better position in which to watch and listen. She thought a moment, and then carefully felt her way around to the other side of the steps, and here, sitting down with her feet hanging over the drop, she leaned against the wall, and through a chink between the logs had a perfect view of the large cabin. The men were filing in, silent and intense. Joan counted twenty-seven in all. They appeared to fall into two groups, and it was significant that the larger group lined up on the side nearest Kells, and the smaller back of Golden. He had removed the bandage, and, with a raw, red blotch, where his right ear had been shot away, he was hideous. There was some kind of power emanating from him, but it was not that which was so keenly vital and impelling in Kells. It was brute ferocity, dominating by sheer physical force. In any but muscular clash between Kells and Golden, the latter 
must lose. The men behind Golden were a bearded, check-shirt, heavily armed group, the worst of that bad lot. All the younger, cleaner-cut men like Red Pierce and Frenchy and Beatty Jones and Williams and the scout Blicky were on the other side. There were two factions here, yet scarcely an antagonism, except possibly in the case of Kells. Joan felt that the atmosphere was supercharged with suspense and fatality and possibility, and anything might happen. To her great joy, Jim Cleve was not present. "'Where's Beard and Wood?' queried Kells. "'Working over Beard's sick horse,' replied Pierce. "'They'll show up by and by. Anything you say goes with them, you know.' "'Did you find young Cleve?' "'No, he camps up in the timber somewheres. Reckon he'll be along, too.' Kells sat down at the head of the table, and taking up the little book, he began to finger it while his pale eyes studied the men before him. We shuffled the deck pretty well over at Beards, he said. Now for the deal. Who wants cards? I've organized my border legion. I'll have absolute control, whether there's ten men or a hundred. Now, whose names go down in my book? Red Pierce stepped up and labored over the writing of his name. Blicky, Jones, Williams, and others followed suit. They did not speak, but each shook hands with the leader. Evidently, Kells exacted no oath, but accepted each man's free action and his word of honor. There was that about the bandit which made such action as binding as ties of blood. He did not want men in his legion who had not loyalty to him. He seemed the kind of leader to whom men would be true. Kells, say them conditions over again, requested one of the men, less eager to hurry with the matter. At this juncture, Joan was at once thrilled and frightened to see Jim Cleve enter the cabin. He appeared whiter of face, almost ghastly, and his piercing eyes swept the room, from Kells to Golden, from men to men. Then he leaned against the wall, indistinct in the shadow. Kells gave no sign that he had noted the advent of Cleve. "'I'm the leader,' replied Kells deliberately. "'I'll make the plans. I'll issue orders.' No jobs without my knowledge. Equal shares in gold, man to man. Your word to stand by me. A muttering of approval ran through the listening group. Reckon I'll join, said the man who had wished the conditions. Repeat it. With that he advanced to the table and, apparently not being able to write, he made his mark in the book. Kells wrote the name below. The other man of this contingent, one by one, complied with Kells's requirements. The action left Golden and his group to be dealt with. "'Golden, are you still on the fence?' demanded Kells, coolly. The giant strode stolidly forward to the table. As always, before to Joan, he seemed to be a ponderous hulk, slow, heavy, plodding, with a mind to match. "'Kells, if we can agree, I'll join,' he said in his sonorous voice. "'You can bet you won't join unless we do agree,' snapped Kells. "'But see here, Golden, let's be friendly. "'The border is big enough for both of us. "'I want you, I need you. "'Still, if we can't agree, let's not split and be enemies. "'How about it?' Another muttering among the men attested to the good sense and goodwill of Kells's suggestion. 
"'Tell me what you're going to do. How will you operate?' replied Golden. Kells had difficulty in restraining his impatience and annoyance. "'What's that to you or any of you?' he queried. You all know I'm the man to think of things. That's been proved. First it takes brains. I'll furnish them. Then it takes execution. You and Pierce and the gang will furnish that. What more do you need to know? How you're going to operate, persisted Golden. Kells threw up both hands, as if it was useless to argue or reason with this desperado. All right, I'll tell you, he replied. Listen, I can't say what definite plans I'll make till Jesse Smith reports, and then when I get on the diggings. But here's a working basis. Now don't miss a word of this, Golden, nor any of you men. We'll pack our outfits down to this gold strike. We'll build cabins on the outskirts of the town, and we won't hang together. The gang will be spread out. Most of you will make a bluff at digging gold. Be like other miners. Get in with cliques and clans. Dig, drink, gamble like the rest of them. Beard will start a gambling place. Red Pierce will find some other kind of work. I'll buy up claims, employ miners to work them. I'll disguise myself and get in with the influential men and have a voice in matters. You will all be scouts. You'll come to my cabin at night to report. We'll not tackle any little jobs. Miners going out with fifty or a hundred pounds of gold, the wagons, the stagecoach, these will have time to write, and whoever I detail on the job will hold them up. You must all keep sober, if that's possible. You must all absolutely trust to my judgment. You must all go masked while on a job. You must never speak a word that might direct suspicion to you. In this way, we may work all summer without detection. The Border Legion will become mysterious and famous. It will appear to be a large number of men operating all over. The more secretive we are, the more powerful the effect on the diggings. In gold camps, when there's a strike, all men are mad. They suspect each other. They can't organize. We shall have them helpless. And in short, if it's as rich a strike as looks do here in these hills, before winter we can pack out all the gold our horses can carry. Kells had begun under restraint, but the sound of his voice, the liberation of his great idea, roused him to a passion. The man radiated with passion. This, then, was his dream, the empire he aspired to. He had a powerful effect upon his listeners, except Golden, and it was evident to Joan that the keen bandit was conscious of his influence. Golden, however, showed nothing that he had not already showed. He was always a strange, dominating figure. He contested the relations of things. Kells watched him. The men watched him. And Jim Cleve's piercing eyes glittered in the shadow fixed upon that massive face. Manifestly, Golden meant to speak. But in his slowness, there was no laboring, no pause from emotion. He had an idea, and it moved like he moved. Dead men tell no tales. The words boomed deep from his cavernous chest, a mutter that was a rumble, with something almost solemn in its note and certainly menacing, breathing murder. As Kells had propounded his ideas, revealing his power 
to devise a remarkable scheme and his passion for gold, so Golden struck out with the driving, inhuman bloodlust that must have been the twist, the knot, the clot in his brain. Kells craved notoriety and gold. Golden craved to kill. In the silence that followed his speech, these wild border ruffians judged him, measured him, understood him. And though some of them grew farther aloof from him, more of them sensed the safety that hid in his terrible implication. But Kells rose against him. Golden, you mean when we steal gold, to leave only dead men behind? he queried, with a hiss in his voice. The giant nodded grimly. But only fools kill, unless in self-defense, declared Kells passionately. We'll last longer, replied Golden imperturbably. No, no, we'll never last so long. Killings rouse a mining camp after a while. Gold fever or no, that means a vigilante band. We can belong to the vigilantes, just as well as to your legion, said Golden. The effects of this was to make Golden appear less of a fool than Kells supposed him. The ruffians nodded to one another. They stirred restlessly. They were animated by a strange and provocative influence. Even Red Pierce and the others caught its subtlety. It was evil predominating in evil hearts. Blood and death loomed like a shadow here. Then Kells saw the change working towards a transformation, and he seemed craftily fighting something within him that opposed this cold ruthlessness of his men. Golden, suppose I don't see it your way, he asked. Then I won't join your legion. What will you do? I'll take the man who stand by me and go clean up that gold camp. From the fleeting expression on Kells's face, Joan read that he knew Golden's project would defeat his own and render both enterprises fatal. Golden, I don't want to lose you, he said. You won't lose me if you see this thing right, replied Golden. You've got the brains to direct us, but Kells, you're losing your nerve. It's this girl you've got here. Golden spoke without rancor or fear or feeling of any kind. He merely spoke the truth, and it shook Kells with an almost ungovernable fury. Joan saw the green glare of his eyes, his gray working face, the flutter of his hand. She had an almost superhuman insight into the workings of his mind. She knew that then he was fighting whether or not to kill Golden on the spot, and she recognized that this was the time when Kells must kill Golden or, from that moment, see a gradual diminishing of his power on the border. But Kells did not recognize that crucial height of his career. His struggle with his fury and hate showed that the thing uppermost in his mind was the need of conciliating Golden and thus regaining a hold over the men. Golden, suppose we waive the question till we're on the grounds, he suggested. Wave nothing. It's one or the other with me, declared Golden. Do you want to be leader of this border legion, went on Kells deliberately. No. Then what do you want? Golden appeared at a loss for an instant reply. I want plenty to do, he replied presently. I want to be in on everything. I want to be free to kill a man when I like. When you like, retorted Kells, and added a curse. 
Then, as if by magic, his dark face cleared, and there was infinite depth and craftiness in him. His opposition, and that hint of hate and loathing, which detached him from Golden, faded from his bearing. Golden, I'll split the difference between us. I'll leave you free to do as you like. But all the others, every man, must take orders from me. Golden reached out a huge hand. His instant acceptance evidently amazed Kells and the others. Let her rip, Golden exclaimed. He shook Kells's hand and then laboriously wrote his name in the little book. In that moment, Golden stood out alone in the midst of wild, abandoned men. What were Kells and this legion to him? What was the stealing of more or less gold? Free to do as you like, except fight my men, said Kells. That's understood. If they don't pick a fight with me, added the giant, and he grinned. One by one his followers went through with the simple observances that Kells's personality made a serious and binding compact. Anybody else called Kells, glancing round? The somberness was leaving his face. Here's Jim Cleve, said Pierce, pointing toward the wall. Hello, youngster, come here. I'm wanting you bad, said Kells. Cleve sauntered out of the shadow, and his glittering eyes were fixed on Golden. There was an instant of waiting. Golden looked at Cleve, then Kells quickly strode between them. Say, I forgot you fellows had trouble, he said. He attended solely to Golden. You can't renew your quarrel now, Golden. We've all fought together, more or less, and then been good friends. I want Cleve to join us, but not against your ill will. How about it? I've no ill will, replied the giant, and the strangeness of his remark lay in its evident truth. But I won't stand to lose my other ear. Then the ruffians guffawed in hoarse mirth. Golden, however, did not seem to see any humor in his remark. Kells laughed with the rest. Even Cleve's white face relaxed into a semblance of a smile. That's good. We're getting together, declared Kells. Then he faced Cleve, all about him expressive of elation, of assurance, of power. Jim, will you draw cards in this deal? What's the deal? asked Cleve. Then in swift, eloquent speech, Kells launched the idea of his border legion, its advantages to any loose-footed young outcast, and he ended his brief talk with much the same argument he had given Joan. Back there in her covert, Joan listened and watched, mindful of the great need of controlling her emotions. The instant Jim Cleve stalked into the light, she had been seized by a spasm of trembling. Kells, I don't care two straws one way or another, replied Cleve. The bandit appeared nonplussed. You don't care whether you join my legion or whether you don't? Not a damn, was the indifferent answer. Then do me a favor, went on Kells. Join to please me. We'll be good friends. You're in bad out here on the border. You might as well fall in with us. I'd rather go alone. But you won't last. It's a lot I care. The bandit studied the reckless white face. See here, Cleve, haven't you got the nerve to be bad, thoroughly bad? Cleve gave a start, as if he had been stung. Joan shut her eyes to blot out what she saw in his face. Kells had used part of the very speech with which she had driven Cleve 
to his ruin. And those words galvanized him. The fatality of all this. Joan hated herself. Those very words of hers would drive this maddened and heartbroken boy to join Kells's band. She knew exactly what to expect from Jim, even before she opened her eyes. Yet when she did open them, it was to see him transformed and blazing. Then Kells either gave way to leaping passion or simulated it in the interest of his cunning. Cleve, you're going down for a woman, he queried, with that sharp, mocking ring in his voice. If you don't shut up, you'll get there first, replied Cleve, menacingly. Bah! Why do you want to throw a gun on me? I'm your friend. You're sick. You're like a poisoned pup. I say, if you've got nerve, you won't quit. You'll take a run for your money. You'll see life. You'll fight. You'll win some gold. There are other women. Once I thought I would quit for a woman, but I didn't. I never found the right one till I had gone to hell, out here on this border. If you've got nerve, show me. Be a man instead of a crazy youngster. Spit out the poison. Tell it before us all. Some girl drove you to us. Yes, a girl, replied Cleve, hoarsely, as if goaded. It's too late to go back. Too late. There's nothing left but wild life that makes you forget. Nothing. Only I can't forget, he panted. Cleve was in a torture of memory, of despair, of weakness. Joan saw how Kells worked upon Jim's feelings. He was only a hopeless, passionate boy in the hands of a strong, implacable man. He would be like wax to a sculptor's touch. Jim would bend to this bandit's will, and through his very tenacity of love and memory, be driven further on the road to drink, to gaming, and to crime. Joan got to her feet, and with all her woman's soul uplifting and inflaming her, she stood ready to meet the moment that portended. Kells made a gesture of savage violence. Show your nerve. Join with me. You'll make a name on this border that the West will never forget. That last hint of desperate fame was the crafty bandit's best trump, and it won. Cleve swept up a weak and nervous hand to brush the hair from his damp brow. The keenness, the fire, the aloofness had departed from him. He looked shaken, as if by something that had been pointed out as his own cowardice. Sure, Kells, he said recklessly, let me in the game, and by God I'll play the hand out. He reached for the pencil and bent over the book. Wait, oh, wait, cried Joan. The passion of that moment, the consciousness of its fateful portent and her situation, as desperate as Cleve's, gave her voice a singularly high, and piercingly sweet intensity. She glided from behind the blanket, out of the shadow, into the glare of the lanterns, to face Kells and Cleve. Kells gave one astounded glance at her, and then, divining her purpose, he laughed thrillingly and mockingly, as if the sight of her was a spur, as if her courage was a thing to admire, to permit, and to regret. Cleve, my wife... Dandy Dale, he said, suave and cool. Let her persuade you one way or another. The presence of a woman, however disguised, following her singular appeal, transformed Cleve. He stiffened erect, and the flush died out of his face, leaving it whiter than ever, 
and the eyes that had grown dull quickened and began to burn. Joan felt her cheeks blanch. She had all but fainted under that gaze. But he did not recognize her, though he was strangely affected. Wait, she cried again, and she held to that high voice, so different from her natural tone. I've been listening. I've heard all that's been said. Don't join this border legion. You're young and still honest. For God's sakes, don't go the way of these men. Kells will make you a bandit. Go home, boy, go home. Who are you to speak to me of honesty, of home? Cleve demanded. I'm only a woman, but I can feel how wrong you are. Go back to that girl who, who drove you to the border. She must repent. In a day you'll be too late. Oh, boy, go home. Girls never know their minds, their hearts. Maybe your girl loved you. Oh, maybe your heart is breaking now. A strong, muscular ripple went over Cleve, ending in a gesture of fierce protest. Was it pain her words caused, or disgust, that such as she dared mention this girl he had loved? Joan could not tell. She only knew that Cleve was drawn by her presence, fascinated and repelled, subtly responding to the spirit of her, doubting what he heard and believing with his eyes. "'You beg me not to become a bandit?' he asked slowly, as if revolving a strange idea. "'Oh, I implore you.' why i told you because you're still good at heart you've only been wild because are you the wife of kells he flashed at her a reply seemed slowly wrenched from joan's reluctant lips no the denial left the silence behind it the truth that all knew when spoken by her was a kind of shock the ruffians gaped in breathless attention Kells looked on with a sardonic grin, but he had grown pale, and upon the face of Cleve shone an immeasurable scorn. "'Not his wife!' exclaimed Cleve softly. His tone was unendurable to Joan. She began to shrink. A flame curled within her. How he must hate any creature of her sex! "'And you appeal to me?' he went on. Suddenly a weariness came over him. The complexity of women was beyond him. Almost he turned his back upon her. I reckon such as you can't keep me from Kells or blood or hell. Then you're a narrow-souled weakling, born the crime, she burst out, in magnificent wrath. For however appearances are against me, I am a good woman. That stunned him, just as it drew Kells upright, white and watchful. Cleve seemed long in grasping its significance. His face was half averted. Then he turned slowly, all strung, and his hands clutched quiveringly at the air. No man of coolness and judgment would have addressed him or moved a step in that strained moment. All expected some such action as had marked his encounter with Luce or Golden. Then Cleve's gaze at unmistakable meaning swept over Joan's person. How could her appearance and her appeal be reconciled? One was a lie, and his burning eye robbed Joan of spirit. He forced me to, to wear thee, she faltered. I'm his prisoner, I'm helpless. With cat-like agility, Cleve leaped backward, so that he faced all the men, and when his hands swept to a level, they held gleaming guns. 
His utter abandon of daring transfixed these bandits in surprise as much as fear. Kells appeared to take most to himself the menace. I crawl, he said huskily. She speaks the God's truth. But you can't help matters by killing me. Maybe she'd be worse off. He expected this wild boy to break loose, yet his wit directed him to speak the one thing calculated to check Cleve. Oh, don't shoot, moaned Joan. You go outside, ordered Cleve. Get on a horse and lead another near the door. Go. I'll take you away from this. Both temptation and terror assailed Joan. Surely that venture would mean only death to Jim and worse for her. She thrilled at the thought, at the possibility of escape, at the strange front of this erstwhile nerveless boy. She had not the courage for what seemed only desperate folly. I'll stay, she whispered. You go. Hurry, woman. No, no. Do you want to stay with this bandit? Oh, I must. Then you love him? All the fire of Joan's heart flared up to deny the insult, and all her woman's cunning fought to keep back words that inevitably must lead to revelation. She drooped, unable to hold up under her shame, yet strong to let him think vilely of her for his sake. That way she had a barest chance. Get out of my sight, he ejaculated thickly. I'd have fought for you. Again that white, weary scorn radiated from him. Joan bit her tongue to keep from screaming. How could she live under this torment? It was she, Joan Randall, that had earned that scorn, whether he knew her or not. She shrank back, step by step. Almost dazed, sick with a terrible inward coldness, blinded by scalding tears, she found her door and stumbled in. Kells, I'm what you called me, she heard Cleve's voice strangely far off. There's no excuse, unless I'm not just right in my head about women. Overlook my break or don't, as you like. But if you want me, I'm ready for your border legion. End of chapter 11